So I woke up really early one morning and felt like I had this idea. And um, so I got up and brewed my coffee and wrote all of these ideas down. And by 6 a.m. I had Rock Girl Gang. Rock Girl Gang is a primarily a blog that features female creatives, entrepreneurs, um, makers, uh, just women doing creative things in the city of Rochester. I'm interested in um, people's stories and so I wanted to know these women's stories. So it really started out with a need that I had to connect. The women that I'm meeting are amazing and they're, they are so similar to me, probably more than I even would have thought. Um, and you know what? I have a lot to learn from them. And so I know God gave me this idea. And again, it's not a ministry idea. It's just a, this idea. It gained a lot of popularity really quick. And I kind of thought I had some big goals for myself and I got most of them within the first six months. I just want to do more of that. I want more women to meet, um, to connect on a personal level. Through Becoming Boss, which is kind of the, um, you know, we meet in real life and um, we talk and I interview a panel about their struggles and their accomplishments and how they've grown their business and all this stuff. And um, one of the questions is, what is your primary source of joy? And so I'm really hoping that that can spark some dialogue. And there's all sorts of different women up there because I know that the only thing that can give me joy is Jesus Christ. No matter what sort of success, um, money, recognition, uh, anything, that if, if you don't have your priorities lined up, it's not, it's not going to fill you up, long term at least. It's not going to do, do it for you like you think it will. When this idea uh, came to Sarah, she mentioned uh, in that video, Sarah <clears throat> and Rusty. Some of you may know Sarah and Rusty who, who cut him to church here. Uh, it was a dream, and that dream, uh, uh, March of last year, has kind of become a little bit of a movement over the last year. Some of that video was actually from a gathering, her first uh, gathering a few months ago, and some of it was actually from a gathering um, that was just yesterday um, in downtown Rochester, which I had the opportunity or took the opportunity to sort of sneak in uh, after it started on this uh, beautiful venue uh, downtown, uh, me and 200 women, um, but uh, it, was, uh, it was really an amazing experience uh, for me. I've known Sarah uh, for many years, uh, probably almost most of the years that I've been here. She was working in the youth group when I showed up. But I was so impressed um, as I, in what I saw her doing yesterday. As she said, it's not a ministry, right? This wasn't a gathering. Um, her particular calling isn't to do, you know, vocational ministry. It was a gathering of people that, you know, creatives, entrepreneurs, uh, business leaders. I only met a few. Um, as I looked out over that crowd of 200 plus women, you know, I, I, did, I knew one person. And, you know, I don't know that there was a believer in the bunch or, or if there were, um, that there were that many. But I did know the woman who was leading it. I do know what she's about, 
And it was a strong uh, a reminder to me um, of what God has called us to do, especially in our time when people in our culture, I think this is more true than it was true 20 or 30 years ago, increasingly in our culture are far from God and would not make the decision to do what all of us did perhaps without thinking of it, which is come to a church service on a Sunday morning. God has called us, I think, to share our stories. That is our own testimony. I think God certainly has called us to share this story. Um, But more than both of those, or as a way to do both of those, he's called us to be our story in front of people who do not know Christ as their Savior, who don't... um, Uh, uh, have a relationship with God out in the world where they live. And as I watched Sarah, I was so uh, proud of her. And what I think I most admired about watching um, that event is the courage that she displayed, right? To actually put herself out there to engage uh, people, real people, Knowing that, right? I mean, they, they, when I, at the beginning of the event, there was people uh, uh, um, you know, uh, lined up around this venue, and they, they paid money to get into this event. Imagine the, 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 the fear that that might strike in you, because one of two things can happen. Number one, you could fail, right? Or number two, you could decide, as she even hinted at, basically compromise your principles, who you are as a person, once you get into that kind of situation. But I was so proud to see her uh, be who she was uh, in front of a group of people like that. And I don't know uh, if I've seen any better uh, illustration of what I think the Jesus, the revolution that Jesus started, what is it actually supposed to look like? I don't know if I saw a better picture of it lately than I saw uh, yesterday morning and afternoon, to put herself out there um, as a Christ follower with people who don't share that point of view uh, is what God has called all of us to do. And it's something, as we conclude this series this morning, Mark 14, if you have a Bible with you, that is being courageous and taking a stand for who you are, it's something sadly that was lacking from the pre-resurrection, pre-Easter disciples in a very big way uh, at the end of the Jesus gospel story. The arrest of Jesus. We're looking at this final message. Um, It's one of the the, the strangest and saddest passages, I think, certainly for Christ followers, if it is a picture of them. But it is also a great reminder and a challenge to us who are Christ followers today, of what it really means to follow Jesus, I think, and what it really means to participate in the revolution that Jesus started. Mark 14, verses 43 to 52. The Bible says these words. Just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, appeared. With him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, 
and kissed him. The men seized Jesus and arrested him. Then one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Am I leading a rebellion, said Jesus, that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you, teaching in the temple courts, and you did not arrest me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then everyone deserted him and fled. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. What a strange um, passage of Scripture. What can we learn in this moment, uh, the arrest of Jesus, about what it means to follow Jesus um, into the world with the message of the gospel? The first thing I think this passage teaches us is we need to put down our swords, okay? We need to put down our swords. Well, what do you mean by that, Pastor? You know, think about Jesus, okay? We're wrapping up his life story, at least in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus spoke truth to power, right? I think none of us would, would not agree that Jesus was not afraid to speak his mind, and he did that often to power, often the religious leaders. Jesus did things that um, people found very... Um, upsetting and um, uh, different. He, he healed on the Sabbath and almost seemed to do it in a provocative way. He was a provocative churchgoer in his day. Jesus even uh, called out directly many times people's hypocrisy. Jesus was not afraid um, to uh, call things as he saw them when it came to hypocrisy. But I think you would agree with me that on the whole, looking at the life of Jesus, he was largely a non-violent, um, if you want to call him a, a revolutionary or you want to call him a, you know, a, a, a man who had a, a following, who was challenging the status quo, but he was largely non-violent, right? Jesus didn't walk around, you know, packing heat. That's why Jesus says in verse 48, he's, he's, he's asking them a good question. He's, he's making a point, am I leading a rebellion, right? A lot of rebellions in Jesus' day, not too different from our own. There's people who are uprising, taking up arms against the status quo. Am I leading a rebellion, Jesus says, that you've come out to me with not just one or two. It's a crowd armed with swords and clubs. Can you imagine? A crowd. Who knows who this is? To take Jesus. When every day I was with you teaching in the temple. What, what gives, Jesus is saying. He's kind of just asking an interesting question. Guys. I mean, if you've ever been on the, the, the Mount of Olives where Jesus is, the, the Garden of Gethsemane, it's one and the same thing. You could almost punt a football and hit the temple. I mean, it's not very far. Jesus said, listen, every day I'm with you out there teaching, doing my thing, which is not throwing stones, which is not, you know, club and, and sword in hand. I'm teaching the people in the temple courts. Every day I'm there, I'm the easiest arrest you could find, what's with the clubs and the swords, right? But Jesus didn't come to take power. Jesus, we don't see that, in other words, he wants to take over. He wanted to establish himself in power. He didn't even come to displace power, if you think about it, right? Remember the great, we looked at this a month ago, and they, they said, should we pay this tax, 
the temple tax. Should we pay the head tax, as it's called? And the head tax was only people who weren't Roman citizens had to pay it. So if you were someone like the Jews who lived in Palestine, taken over by Roman occupation, it especially rubbed you the wrong way because your neighbors who were Roman citizens, they didn't pay it. And, they, and, and Jesus' followers, some of them, the zealots, couple of his disciples, they didn't want Jesus to pay it, and they thought, this is the moment he's going to show what it really means to bring power, God's power to bear in the world, thy kingdom come kind of a thing, and Jesus says, listen, render to Caesar what is Caesar's. In other words, I'm not here to displace Caesar. I'm not here to sit in his seat, right? Jesus didn't come to take power. He didn't come to, uh, 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 you know, displace power. His revolution was aimed at the human heart, and it was done equally to both parties, both houses of Congress, so to speak. Both the haves and the have-nots were on Jesus' guest list, right? Remember the story of Nicodemus? Those of you who remember it, where we get the phrase, you must be born again? John chapter 3, Jesus meets Nicodemus at night, and he leads him in a faith decision. Nicodemus represented in this culture the elite. He was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He sat in seats of power. He had a private meeting with this very important rabbi, and he leads him to faith. Guess who he meets in John chapter 4? A woman who's a prostitute and a Samaritan. He was, she was on the other end of the spectrum. Jesus was an equal opportunity, uh, a savior. Remember who, who, who is the chief disciple, he's not named, but he's in verse 47, who leads the 12 disciples, his name is Peter, the salty fisherman. But guess who wrote most of the New Testament? A scholar named Paul. You know, many of Jesus' followers, you, we looked at one of these passages, were lepers. We saw this last week, Jesus having dinner in Simon the leper's house. One time he healed a whole little colony of lepers in the book of Luke. But it also says at the end of the book of Philippians, Jesus says, and tell all the members of Caesar's household, or I'm sorry, Paul says this, they were also part of the early church community, right? Jesus Christ was not interested in just putting new people into power, right? Look at one quick verse, John chapter 18, verse 36, or listen. Put down your sword. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest. Now, one of his servants had that inclination, but it was a wrong inclination. But now my kingdom is from another place. Well, what does Jesus mean when he says, my kingdom is not of this world? He's not saying, well, I, my kingdom's in heaven. I don't really care what happens here. That's not what he's saying. I mean, Jesus' whole focus of his life and his work was the earth that you and I live on was human society. My kingdom come, thy will be done on earth, right? He wasn't saying my kingdom is, 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 is not in this world or for this world. He was saying my kingdom is not um, uh, 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 of this world, right? My kingdom is not of this world. In other words, how my bring, go about bringing about my revolution is not the same way the world would do it, right? Jesus didn't read the art of war or the little red book or, you know, that's not how he understood how to bring power into the world. He wasn't looking to put a new set of people into power. He was looking to bring a new reality. It's called the kingdom of God. We're the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. 
Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who make peace. Right? That's what Jesus was about. You know, at the end of John's um, uh, version of the feeding of the 5,000, most famous story, all of us know it, I would imagine in this room, the flows and the fishes, it's a shorthand for the Christian faith. It's in all four of the Gospels. In John's Gospel, Jesus does this miracle. Thousands of people are fed. says so 5,000 men, which means women and children, a lot of people. And at the end of that miracle, I think it's John 6, 14, or 15, it says, they, whoever the leaders were, I guess, the, of, this, of this big you know, uh, feeding on a hill, it says, they came to Jesus and they forcibly wanted to make him king. Now, if Jesus Christ came into the world to displace power or to be power, this was his moment, right? This was the ideal moment. What they were saying was, listen, Jesus, you see these 10, 5,000 men? There's thousands more just like them. And we will take up arms and we will march right now to, uh, uh, to Caesarea and, and confront the powers that be and we'll put you on the throne. You know what Jesus said? Not interested, right? He withdrew uh, and said uh, in, in, into a mountain by himself. Why did he do that? Because Jesus Christ came to change hearts and minds, right? Christi a Christianity that comes by force whether that's the Crusades of the Middle Ages, whether that's a legalistic religion that some of you may have grown up with, whether it's the moral majority, if your memory goes back that far, a Christianity that comes by force will not change the human heart. Right? That's why he didn't have that kind of a revolution. A friend of mine sent me an article recently it was about three books that were written, I think, in 2016, all by religious scholars, all by smart people, all, let's say, you know, Christian uh, uh, leaders, uh, writers. And they, they, they just made this same point, which is the purpose of this article. I said, you know what's interesting? They were looking at the 30 years, the 80s, 90s, and the first decade of this century, and it talked about the success of political conservatism. Right, starting with Ronald Reagan. He said, there's something interesting that we've noticed. There's been this success legislatively in some ways, right? Some of us maybe uh, appreciate that and a part of that over these three decades. But the irony is, or the strange thing that we're, we're seeing here, is at the same time we've had some political successes, the, the, the American culture has been uh, gone in, a, in, in the wrong direction. There's been a ruination of the American culture that's coincided with the rise of, uh, of conservative politics. Now, he wasn't saying that was cause and effect. He wasn't saying, I'm not a conservative and I don't want to... I, I don't think this guy was trying to say there was a cause and effect. He's just saying, isn't it interesting that after 30 years of doing, let's say, some good things legislatively, that when it comes to the American culture, it hasn't changed any hearts and minds, Right? Just making the simple point that a Christianity by force or legislation doesn't change anybody's life. Let me tell you something. You wouldn't be surprised. It's all relative, you know, people on the political spectrum. But you wouldn't be surprised that a pastor is generally conservative. But, you know, it's, it's a moving target. And I vote, and I hope you vote. And we all ought to take advantage of it as long as we can do it. But let me tell you something. As a, as a citizen, I'm relatively conservative. As a, as a Christian, I'm a servant. It's different. And when I'm at my best, which isn't always, 
I'm walking into a broken world, toward a broken world, not away from it, and trying to serve that broken world with the same love that has been served to me by Jesus. There was a couple in our church, some last hour. Some of you may know uh, there was a... Um, a uh, horrible car accident. I mean, there's so many things, but this was in West Aronaquit a few weeks ago. A kid, a freshman in high school, um, was, um, you know, he's on life support as far as I know. Now, this couple, I don't think they even, I think it was through a friend of a friend of a friend. They did not know this couple, but they just decided to take it upon themselves to do whatever they could do to get a lot of people, including me and others, to pray for them, to come alongside them. Not only did they have this kid who's on life support, but the mom of this family, some of you may have read the story, she's got terminal cancer. And they just said, we don't know what we can do. We don't know what the back faith background is a family, but we are going to walk into that direction and do whatever it is that God wants us to do. Will you join me, right? Because sometimes it's not about telling your story or even telling this story. Both of those are good things. It's about being the story in front of people who are hurting, right? You're going to put down your swords. You need to pick up your hearts, right? You need to pick up your hearts. That's what we're talking about. That's really ultimately where this passage is leading. You know what's interesting about this passage? Um, it's, it's, this is the last place anyone would use to, to, to recruit anybody to be a Christian, right? In other words, the followers of Jesus all hit for the exits. Verse 50. Then everyone deserted him. This, some scholars read this and they go, this is one of the reasons, right, Rick, why they know that they believe the Bible. It's one of them to say the Bible is not a made-up story, right? Because anybody is writing a story about the followers of Jesus. Would you include this? One of the disciples sails you down the river. The other 12 hit for the exit. Oh, yeah, by the way, there's some crazy guy who who runs away naked at the end, right? I mean, who writes this stuff unless it's an eyewitness account, okay? But in the midst of what looks like a very bad um, advertisement for the followers of Jesus, what do you have in contrast? You have Jesus himself, right? Jesus himself, who is an amazing inspiration uh, to us who in the face of an angry mob, and I use that word mob because verse 43 says, not a few people, a crowd armed with swords and clubs. Really, Jesus like, seems like an overkill. I mean, I, I teach with you every day. What gives? You brought the, you know, a, a, a platoon in here to arrest you know, me? In the face of an angry mob, Jesus holds his composure He's completely self-possessed, and he actually, he doesn't throw a punch back. He essentially, with grace, walks further into the mess uh, that has showed up in front of him. And he says this, I don't, I don't know, I think you're overdoing it, guys, but, uh, you know, here you go. I'm coming with you because the scriptures must be fulfilled. In other words, this is the essence of my revolution. We talked about this two or three weeks ago. He came, the, the purpose statement in Mark's gospel, to be a ransom 
for many. I came not to be served. Are you kidding me? You think I wanted to come in this world so you could shine my shoes and give me a great you know, throne to sit on? I came not to be served. I came to serve and to be a ransom for many. I came to walk toward people and love people who I know are not going to love me back. Right? That's the Jesus revolution. That's what he's called us to. In the inclination, we learn from Matthew's gospel of Peter to take up the sword was not the right inclination. It says even guys like Peter, serious disciples, when push came to shove, they, they decided to adopt the world's view, right, of how you bring about change. Put down your sword, pick up your heart, right? The, the, the core inner motivation, if I could describe it, of what it means, the Jesus revolution, to be a Jesus follower is this. We are, we are free to identify with a world of need because our fundamental needs have already been met. You and I can go further into the burning house, further into the house at the, the marriage in trouble, further into a culture that's in deep trouble. We can go further and identifying with the world because I don't need anything from the world. I don't need their money. I don't need their validation. I don't need to have my name in the paper. I don't, it's not scratch, I'll scratch your back and you scratch mine. I'm not looking for that kind of prominence. I have what I need because Jesus Christ has met those needs. And I can run into that burning house because you know what? It doesn't matter. And when I choose to do that and when you choose to do that, we're really following Jesus just like you see Jesus doing here. You can go farther into a broken world than others because you're not looking. You shouldn't be for anything in return. Quickly, look at Paul's words. Again, Paul says, what Jesus says in a word or two, picks Paul a few paragraphs, but listen carefully. Romans 12, 17. Writing to the New Testament church. Put down your swords. Pick up your hearts. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, if it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone, everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. That's his business. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord, on the contrary. Now listen here. If your enemy is hungry, tell him to shove it. Oh. <laughs> Feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. It's a proverb. Do not be overcome by evil. Here's the principle. But overcome evil with good. Right? That's what we're called to do. Right? And like Sarah said, you don't got to get in a plane. If you do, great. Gary Neasel just got back a few stitches in his head. Right? If you know Gary. But most of us, the vast majority of us, need to go into our office, into our classroom, into the sports locker room, down the street. You don't have to look very far to find burning homes. We, come, we overcome evil by good, right? Overcome evil by good. 
you know, the, um, the, when I was in that event yesterday, at the very end, Sarah had this panel up there. And the panel, um, she asked this final question. Remember, this isn't a ministry event. She said, you know, professional women, what brings you joy? What brings you joy? Good question, right? You know, they, one said family, you know, friends. And then the one girl in the middle uh, passage, or one woman, young woman, she said, um, I don't even, I didn't meet her, but I see her face in my mind. She said, my faith in God. And I thought to myself, isn't that amazing? I, this much I know, because I know Sarah. There's no way, certainly um, yesterday morning or a year ago when this idea was dreamt up, that she could have anticipated what this woman was going to say, right? She didn't even know it was going to be on the panel. But you know what? God knew it. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith. It is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man or woman should boast. For we are his handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, wait for it, that he has prepared for us in advance to do. Did Sarah know this woman was going to talk about her faith in God? I'm sure she didn't, but God knew. God knew. And she simply, in obedience, said, I'm going to go in the direction of a broken world. I'm going to, it's, yes, I want to tell my story, and yes, I want to tell this story. Be always ready to give an answer to anyone who asks you about the hope is within you, but I'm going to be the story in front of these people. That's the Jesus revolution. That's what he's called us to do. That's what he's called you to do. You need to allow me to, to, to um, brag on one more person in our church, and I'll be done. Another Jesus revolution story. This is a guy I've known for most of my uh, probably 10 years anyway here, uh, who I've watched put down his sword and pick up his heart, who's walked into a place of human need in the name of Jesus um, like nobody's business. His name is Dave Bavard, and he's leading his own little movement into the refugee community. Watch this brief video. you put 10 things on a grid of things that I would be doing, refugee wouldn't be part of that. So it's amazing. I see God's fingerprints all over this. I have no idea how it happened, but it's amazing to see what he's doing. So I was exposed to the refugee population uh, by my son Sam, who's a teacher at the Rochester International Academy. And that s spoke to me somehow. So for the last eight months, I've been working for the Catholic Family Center in helping resettle refugees. And what that means basically is assimilating them into our culture. It means taking them to the various uh, assigned appointments, social services, social security, education, doctor visits, things of that nature. I get to know the refugees very well. Most of the appointments we wait two to three hours, um, and so we're sitting there. So I get the chance to have conversation with them. My life has been totally transformed. Think about this, I spent 25 years in law enforcement, and what that does to your heart, you become guarded, you, there's a lack of trust, there's suspicion, that's just, you know, that's the nature of the job. In this job, and working with this population, God has, he is 
built in me a mercy and a compassion and an unconditional love that I've never experienced before in my life. When I'm with my refugee friends, uh, there is such an intensity of joy. And conversely, there's also an intensity of hurt. And what I've really come to understand is I'm really getting a glimpse of God because when he's in relationship with us, the intensity of how his joy is, but he also is, uh, when he sees us hurting, there's the intensity of that hurt as well. I felt at some point that I was going to be a link between the church and the refugee community. The refugee team started like back in February. Rochester International Academy, they, you know, we had volunteers going there. And I think up to now, we have about 20 volunteers going there. And since that time, I've been able to introduce, I can't tell you how many families. And so out of that, um, we have about 40 or 50 members of the church now that want to be involved in this ministry. We've identified about seven families that we're gonna walk alongside. And by walking alongside, it's just developing a nurturing, loving relationship. And out of that, who knows what will happen. You know, ultimately, I would love to see our refugee friends come to know the love of Jesus as their savior. I don't know that that will ever happen. That's out of my control. That's not my goal. My, my goal is to bring them dignity, unconditional love, and in doing so, that's the image of God and that's what they're going to see. How will they ever know, uh, come to know Jesus, if they don't have somebody walking alongside them who can show that unconditional love? So that's really the desire of my heart. I have to have a really strong relationship with Christ. So I, you know, I need to be praying. I need to have my husband praying for me. Um, you know, I need to be in my Bible. I need to know what I'm about. I hit my knees every morning. It's not that I didn't pray before, but this has caused me to hit my knees. Um, it has impacted me in such a way that I'm, I'm so cognizant that these people, especially when they're in my car, they are the children of God. And I recognize them as such, and I just pray over them when they're in the car with me. So hopefully he is displayed through my actions and through what I say, which is a really, really scary because I screw up a lot and I'm a big mouth. And so I really have to, I just have to really depend on him. My thinking and my thought process is so much different, and that leads to different actions as well. Christ said before he ascended to go out into the world and preach the gospel, he didn't really give us much other guidelines than that. And so I think the first step is to get out in the world and do something. It doesn't have to be um, a ministry or you don't have to go to Africa. Um, it can be something as simple as you know starting an Instagram account. If someone wants to start a revolution in their own world, my suggestion is just be open. Be praying and be open to the leading of the Holy Spirit. If that is true, the true desire of your heart, God will lead you to where he wants you. And it will lead to a revolution. This is how 
the revolution that Jesus started brings about change, right, in the world. And by the way, uh, you know, this, those two examples, this is what the REACH initiative is really all about. It's realizing that God has called all of us, right, to be his followers. He's gifted all of us. The Bible doesn't say some are gifted. Everyone is gifted. Everyone is called. The Jesus revolution, in the manner of speaking, it's in you if you know Christ as your Savior. The question is, are you in a position, in a place where you can release it into the world around you? Where you work, where you live, uh, where you hang out, uh, wherever the case may be. We need to put down our swords. We need to pick up our hearts. And we need to go and change the world, right? That's what this is all about. And how do you do that? Well, I think from these two examples, a couple things might be worth thinking. Number one, we've got to stop playing it safe. I love what Dave said, Sarah, too, in her own words. I've never prayed like I have before. Now, why? Because perhaps you have to be in a place of real need. In other words, you're walking towards the human need before you come to a place and actually have to find God's strength in your life. Sarah said, I had to decide, who am I going, what am I really about? Some of us haven't had to decide, what are we really about relative to our faith? Because no one's really pressing us. No one's really asking us. We are not in a place of enough human need where we need to even answer those questions on a daily basis. We need to hit our knees. We need to get out into the real world and to help join God, advance the kingdom of God, right? Right in our little corner of the world, right here. What does that mean to you? Again, I, I close with Dave's words, be open, right? Begin to ask God about the motivations he's placed on your new heart, if you're a Christian, right? It's already there. But they're not going to be actualized and released until you and I decide in obedience to go out into the world, right? Listen, it could be as Karen said. You don't have any idea? How about inviting someone to an Easter service? Now, that might be... Um, they might... Of all those invitations, maybe, maybe a fifth of people, or if that even come, maybe. I'm just guessing. But the point is... It's not even about whether or not they come. hope they do. But it's about that it's an opportunity for you to move outside of a, of a comfortable environment where no one's challenging your faith and, and, and to move out into a world of need, right? That's what it's about. Pray, ask God to be open. Put down your sword. Pick up your heart, right? Fall in love with a broken world. Fall in love with a family who, whose kid just got hit by a car and whose mother has cancer. Fall in love with your neighbors who uh, are lost and on their way to a godless hell. Fall in love with, you know, the, the 10 or 20,000 uh, people who've lost everything and are living in an apartment on Lyle Avenue, whatever the case may be.
So let me say this as you head out. Prayer, I'd start with God. What does he want you to do? Start with how God has made you. And prayerfully say, God, where are you calling me to go? But if you need a starting place, right? I said to Karen, could you come up with just a couple opportunities that people may want to take a step toward the world of need? And she, these are all, as soon as you walk out of here, you can sign up for one or take information. We have 18 partners. She just picked three. Jail ministry, nursing homes, the refugee thing with Dave and his team. Crisis pregnancy, we have partners. They're looking for volunteers. Pedal for life, I talked to the leader this morning. What is that? It's a handful of people, a couple small groups and friends who ride bikes with inner city preteens and teenagers in the Beechwood neighborhood. And they may be sharing their story. They may be sharing this one. I think they are. But they're being their story with uh, some kids who don't know Christ in this community. Decide you're going to do something, right? Let today, Holy Week 2017, be the first day of the rest.